0: Hello, you're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast with James Abbott and Steph McGillivray.
1: Hello and welcome to our Art of Dying Well podcast. I'm joined in the studio as normal by my co-presenter, Steph McGillivray. How are you?
0: Hello, I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm very well, indeed. It's May. You're dressed for May, I can see, even though our listeners can't. The sun's shining. Hopefully, when you're listening to this, it will be for you as well. And we've got something of an extended podcast today. Now, because of that and our highly interesting guest, I'm afraid we are going to have to take a month off our death chatter, Steph. Shame. No, you that, sound more sincere.
0: I'll miss it, James. I will. I will certainly miss our death chatter.
1: You know, I will.
0: But we'll be back next month, bigger and better.
1: So yeah, we've got a really good guest, haven't we? Why don't you tell us who that is?
0: So this month, we are talking to Louise Winter, a woman with many strings to her bow. As well as being a funeral professional and founder of Poetic Endings, which Louise describes as a creative funeral service, she also co-curated Life, Death, Whatever, a month-long exhibition which took place in London in October 2016. As if that wasn't enough, Louise is also an editor for The Good Funeral Guide. Welcome, Louise. Thank you for coming to talk to us this month. That's
2: okay. Thank you for having me.
0: So as we mentioned, you're clearly well-established. You have a role in many different elements of this whole death and dying world. But you've also worked in fashion, I think, before. Did I read somewhere online? You Um, did.
2: I have a much more glamorous background than (laughs) funerals. Although some funerals can be pretty glamorous.
0: I can imagine. We were wondering from going from working in fashion to Mm -hmm. working in funerals, Mm -hmm. what made you decide to do
2: that? Well, I've had quite an eclectic career path, I would say. From the age of four to 17, I wanted to be a doctor. And at 17, I gave all of that up and uh, moved to Paris. Wow. Then I moved to London to go to the London College of Fashion and do lots of glamorous things in the world of upcoming designers and writing about fashion from the front row of Fashion Week and then I went to work for brands and it's all been quite a natural progression none of it has been forced, it's just a new opportunity has come up and It seemed like the right direction to go in. So then I went to work with brands, people like Jack Daniels and Topshop for a 21-year-old entrepreneur. And we went from four people in the office to about 400 all around the world and lots of funding from various investors very quickly. And there I was a creative strategist, which is not dissimilar to what I do now with funerals. Brands would approach us because they had a problem with whether it was a marketing campaign or something that they wanted to solve. And my job was to come up with a creative solution to that problem. Or the problem they thought they had was often not the problem they had. And actually funerals are not dissimilar. Families come to me because someone has died and I have to work with them to put together a creative solution to dealing with their grief. And it all happened because I'd never experienced death before. Not of anyone significantly close to me. I got to 25 without ever attending a funeral. I'm now 30 and have attended hundreds. (laughs) So I outweighed that. And that's not unusual for my generation to not ever experience even the death of a grandparent. And when I got to 25, my granddad died. And um, I'd never experienced grief before. And grief really shocked me. It was so much bigger and different. And it wasn't just negative. There was a lot of positivity in grief as well, and feelings of gratitude and being so thankful for having his presence in my life, as well as anger. And I realised grief was way more than just misery and depression. But that was also the first, my first experience of the funeral world and of very old funeral directors looking very dusty, Mm -hmm. trying to work out whether they were the corpse or (laughs) (laughs) carrying the coffin or should be in the coffin. And going to this very strange crematorium in the middle of nowhere on the outskirts of town and it all being very ugly and out of date and very expensive and not knowing where to stand and just being told, stand here, go here, do this. And it all feeling pretty irrelevant to life and like a giant waste of money and time and resource that didn't seem to really help anyone in my family do what they needed to do to grieve the death of my grandfather. So I decided that I would put it on the back burner and possibly it would be something I would do probably after a midlife crisis. <laughs> and that moment came a couple of years later when I decided I never wanted to see a PowerPoint presentation ever again. I can relate to that. <laughs> um, and I wanted to do something of real consequence. And then it just made total sense. I've Although I'd never experienced death of anyone around me i've had a personal relationship with death my entire life it's always fascinated me and i've nearly died several times Mm -hmm. so to deal with death in a very different way where i embrace it rather than avoid it whilst craving it has totally transformed my relationship with it mostly for the positive
1: do people ever say you're 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 a bit young to be doing this sort of work do you ever get that
2: all the time, <laughs> when I knock on the door of a family's house, and they can, they're often really taken back. One, I've got short blonde hair. Two, I still love fashion, mm. so I usually dress we kind of sell. type <laughs> funeral. And three, they're expecting often someone much older dressed in a grey suit who's mm. going to be quite drab, and they get me. And so far, I haven't had any complaints. Although they might be shocked at the beginning, by the end, they're usually quite appreciative. Although they never want to see me again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I always get, (laughs) it's lovely to meet you, but we hope not to see you Mm -hmm. anytime soon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so you started poetic endings then after sort of having your. Very early midlife crisis, <laughs> if I might say. I did
2: quarter life crisis. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> I did. So I went off to funeral school. I left my I left my job, not knowing how I was going to pay the rent or whether this was a responsible decision. But I went off to funeral school and learned how to be a funeral celebrant, who is someone from who takes funerals from a non-religious perspective most of the time. It can include elements of religion, but it's mostly working with a family to put together the funeral that they would like to have.
1: Are these like regulatory requirements or any legal stuff or is this just, you know?
2: No. So the thing about the funeral industry, which the funeral industry mostly doesn't want you to know, especially the big corporate firms, is that it's entirely unregulated. Mm. So anyone listening to the show could declare themselves to be a funeral director or a funeral right. celebrant tomorrow and start practising. A change of career, James? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I don't think I'd, I'd be quite as good <laughs> as
3: you so.
2: Yeah. So you don't have to be trained. You don't have to have... Any anything at all, um, anyone can do it. I wasn't prepared to start dealing with bereaved people. At the time, bereaved people were really quite frightening to me. Hmm. Um, someone who's just experienced the death of their significant other and is going through a really tough, turbulent time, I wouldn't want to be dealing with them unless I had some knowledge of what to do with grieving people and the logistics of, OK, what's going to happen next?
1: Did you possibly have to ask yourself, am I still grieving and have I I made this decision from a position of grief? Or were you totally Mm -hmm. at peace that
2: this was the right thing? Um, I was totally at peace with that. I felt like even if I was still grieving and whether it was grieving, because I think death, you can grieve death, but there are non-death losses that can grieve as well for the life that you didn't have, the decisions you didn't make, relationships that have fallen apart. And a lot of my life has been about grieving that kind of stuff rather than grieving death-specific losses. Um, but I hoped that I had enough of, an, of a boundary and enough of a self-care program in place to stop sort of it becoming unhealthy. And and a lot of that does happen. People go into it for very well-meaning reasons, but it's to fix their own pain. And they can cause quite a lot of damage to the people they're working with by doing that. Yeah. So
0: this is obviously not an easy line of work. And although mm-hmm. it's unregulated, it's a good idea to receive some kind Mm -hmm. of training beforehand but Mm -hmm. what do you find the most difficult part of it then and what motivates you to keep going if you do find maybe one day you don't feel so good or Mm -hmm. you're in a particularly difficult situation planning a funeral how do you kind of pick yourself up as well as picking the others up around you who you're working for
2: Well, the first thing is that not all funerals are personally triggering so although they might be really dreadful and awful situations i might deal with them and not feel like they're triggering my own personal problems um, or personal grief occasionally and usually completely out of the blue a funeral will come along and it just really gets to me and Mm -hmm. dealing with a family is clearly triggers something within me but that r- happens quite rarely. It's probably one in every 15 funerals yeah. that it comes along, and it's really sort of, OK, I really need to put boundaries in place here and really take care of myself and get additional support from, from other colleagues. But, yeah, it's often surprising the ones that really affect me, and the really, really difficult ones sometimes don't affect me that much. I never know what my day's going to look like. I think my final job before I went away on holiday just a few weeks ago was to call a client who's... Um, Husband had just died to say that we had him in our care and um, that she could come and see him if she wanted to, but we would advise that perhaps she would like to know the state that he is in before she made the decision to come. And it was a really difficult call to make. And my days are often filled with discussions like that, having to pick up the phone and say, I don't actually have the words for this. I am break I'm the breaker of really dreadful news a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and often there are sensitive ways of saying it, but I'm still saying something absolutely horrific to hear.
0: How many funerals do you think you've celebrated then or been involved in over since you cuz you I mean you've been yeah. doing this for what 3
2: years now? Um I have. Um it would be difficult to count into Mm. the hundreds now wow yeah definitely into the hundreds
0: over those i'm sure you've probably as well as you know the difficult ones i'm sure you've had amazing experiences as well but also Mm -hmm. probably some pretty unusual ones i'd imagine do you have uh what's the what's the most unusual request or kind of service that you've been asked to be a part of
2: Oh, they're all different and wonderful in their own unique ways. Even the ones that are really quite traditional and standard can be really quite incredible. People surprise me all the time. Mm. My favourite recently was when the family said to me, "Um, could we have a hearse with blacked-out windows?
0: (laughs) Wow, rock stars.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And... We couldn't have a hearse with blacked-out windows. Sadly, okay. we don't really have them in the UK. But we made alternative arrangements, and um, they didn't want him to arrive in a normal hearse. Mm. So he arrived in a blacked-out van, which yeah. was more he he would have wanted. So they mm. decided they're all totally different. And and actually, when I get asked that question, sort of as though there's going to be some incredible party mm. extravaganza, it doesn't really happen because someone has died and it's really quite serious and um, I try to discourage families from turning things into this giant celebration and party and and no one is to cry and everyone is to smile and Mm -hmm. release balloons and be happy because that's really not what I'm here to do. I'm not the person for that. The funerals I tend to work with are people who yes may want to celebrate and may want it to feel uplifting overall, but also to acknowledge someone has died and we have some really awkward, difficult feelings that we are going to have to express somehow in order to be able to process this grief and get on with our lives. Um, Actually, the the most, I think, rewarding funeral I ever did could have been my own. It was for a 28-year-old girl who went to sleep one night and never woke up, completely out of the blue, and I don't think a cause of death was ever found. It was unexplained. And the reason it was so powerful is that the family in no way attempted to gloss over how difficult it was and what actually a traumatic life she'd had. And the funeral was pretty bleak. It was dramatic. She she was quite dramatic. I think she would have liked it a lot from (laughs) what her friend said. Everyone wore devastating black and huge hats and dressed for the occasion and wept. And I ended the funeral with just one word, which was goodbye. Goodbye. And it was emotionally heavy, but actually it was what the people in the ne- in the room needed. It was a devastating situation, and it would have been so inappropriate to turn it into anything other than what it needed to be right then. So they're all totally different. That approach sometimes isn't quite right. Another favourite funeral was for a lady who died at um, 110, wow. and she had collected poetry about wildflowers her whole life and she was buried in a natural burial ground in the countryside. And all the, it was just really celebratory because she had lived such a long and full life and meant so much to so many people in very different ways over the course of 110 years. And we threw loads of wildflowers into her grave and it was very colourful and very beautiful and read the poetry that she had, she had loved for a very long time.
1: Do you feel there's a lot of life in, in death?
2: There is so much life in death. In fact, I think there's more life in death than death. I personally don't know what death is, and when there is someone at the funeral directors lying in front of me and they're dead, I'm left with questions of what is this? I don't understand where you've gone, what's going on. There is a person here who was no longer here, and all I have really is life life and living. And what I've personally learned so much from death and dying about how to live my life.
0: It's amazing actually seeing before we launched, but definitely since we've launched, you know, having conversations online, on social Mm -hmm. media, all this kind of stuff that we've seen, even in this short space of time, quite an increasing willingness to talk about death Mm -hmm. and dying. What's been the biggest change that you've seen in terms of people's attitudes towards death and dying over the last few years?
2: Um, So what I'm really seeing is less emphasis on what I call funeral hardware and moving on to funeral software. So... There's been a lot of talk about colourful coffins and you can have this hearse and you can go here instead of going to the crematorium and make your funeral this big celebration of life. But that's beginning to shift because all of that stuff is important and it's a great reflection of who the person who's died was. But if we're not dealing with the emotions and the really difficult stuff of someone has died and people are grieving and all of that is in the service and the ceremony and the rituals that we put in place to handle that then why do we even have a funeral? We may as well just have a massive party. So I'm really beginning to see, and it's slow, because it's also part of a bigger change of how society is dealing with difficult emotions. When I'm doing funerals for people who, the the war generation, Mm. who were taught to just sit down, shut up and st- mm. you know, don't cry and just get on with it, keep formal, calm and like carry you. on. Mm. Uh, the funerals are totally different, they're very formal, they're very stiff, it's very much go to the crematorium or to the church or wherever, stand here, do this, go here. And it's very stifled and no one wants to cry and people will say things like, sorry I'm not very good at funerals, mm. <laughs> or um, silent sobbing, <laughs> the noise of people trying to suppress all of that emotion which I don't think is very helpful and actually that was a generation who desperately needed to go to therapy and needed help and they were not given that opportunity whereas funerals for younger people and the way that I see that if a young person has died and their friends are grieving they do it totally differently it's very in the open and it's on Facebook and people are coming together to share that expression and mourning is much more allowed and well and welcome but then that's because going to therapy and meditating and being very mindful and embracing difficulty is much more part of society than it ever Mm. was. And funerals are nothing but a reflection of the way we were brought up. It's sort of the ultimate expression of everything that we believe. Um, So when I'm going into a family to um, sort out a funeral for someone who has, for example, died at the age of 90, it's so different to how (laughs) it is when handling a funeral for a 15-year-old. Yeah. I have to be really considerate of that because what that generation would expect from funerals is very different to yeah. what other generations need.
1: Here are a few ways to contact the show. Email us on theartofdyingwell at gmail.com. On Twitter, it's at Art of Dying Well. For Facebook and Instagram, also use artofdyingwell, of Dying Well. And don't forget our website, it's artofdyingwell.org. Now, you've put on an exhibition, Life, Death whatever which Mm -hmm. is absolutely fascinating so without me doing it tell our listeners what what that's about and what motivated you to do that
2: so life death whatever was a month-long festival that ran in partnership with the national trust in october of last year and the reason i do so much public awareness work around death is that i really saw when i started doing funerals that if you don't deal with death and dying and funerals and so on in life The moment someone close to you dies, it's a terrible time to then start making decisions about which funeral director to use and all these options. And people tend to make terrible decisions in grief, which usually involve calling the so-called local family funeral director, who's often a big corporate in disguise, and then being sold a package funeral, which may or may not be helpful depending on the family. And the best way of stopping that from happening and also helping people to see that death is not just this thing to be boxed and put in the corner and never dealt with, is to deal with it in life and then it can really change the way people are living and their attitude towards it. So all of my work around getting people to deal with death as part of life is to ultimately improve the way we do funerals, therefore improve the way we live after the funeral. So Life, Death, Whatever was a way of getting people to look at death in a different way, to redesign the dialogue that we have with death but without being too obvious, so even the name Life, Death, whatever you could engage with it very deeply and be really moved by, there was some quite graphic stuff in there, Mm. some really emotional stuff, there was some lighter things and you could go into this National Trust property and engage with whatever you felt comfortable Mm. with and it was a way of getting people to open up without it being too horrifying and we didn't have any traditional signs of death really i mean we had something called the interactive coffin playroom where we had cardboard coffins that children could decorate and they were full of plastic balls and children were just running in and diving headfirst into these coffins and having a great time and then everyone started lying in their coffins and taking selfies surrounded Mm -hmm. by these multicolored balls but we also had lots of workshops we had we had a lot of birth in there as well We had birth dealers coming in, we had midwives coming in to talk about the parallels between life and death, as well as events about how to have good funerals and lots of stuff for children as well, grief workshops, helping children to deal with death, helping parents to know how to Mm. talk to their children about death. And because it was set in a National Trust property, It reached an audience that it potentially wouldn't have reached because often people would come thinking that they were going to have a nice look around a Tudor house in Hackney (laughs) and a cup of tea and some cake. And suddenly they were presented with Tudor manor house taken over with all of this death stuff, which they could choose to ignore. And some Mm -hmm. people did choose to ignore it. Other people were surprised and embraced every single moment of it and were really grateful for the experience.
1: Can we talk about one or two of the pieces? I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. been very moved by by all of them, all the ones I've seen. But one or two struck me for various different reasons. I, I would say the... Um how can I put this Kimberly Thomas's F off I'm um, having a cup of tea that, mm-hmm. that obviously by it's very title attracted me but also I loved the uh, how can I describe it it's sort of like the defiance of an older lady sitting
3: mm-hmm.
1: on a, a, a lovely uh, chair with, with the sort of grim reaper over her shoulder mm-hmm. um, how does that one make you feel
2: I love this picture. I really love it and I especially love it because it's got the F word in the title and mm. we managed to get that into a National Trust property <laughs> after a bit of an no, Um But Kimberly, is, as an artist is really inspirational and I love how she came to put together this piece. She lived in Ibiza, she was an illustrator and she was diagnosed with breast cancer and at one point it looked like she might not be alive anymore. And part of her bucket list was that she wanted to re-establish herself as an artist and put her work into an exhibition. Amazingly, she survived um, the cancer and um, is fully recovered. And this was her way of saying F off to death, basically. And I think the old lady is how she felt when her body had been totally crippled by all the chemotherapy and, and she just had this wonderful and desperate need to be alive and to make the most of everything she had. Mm. And
1: there's only one bit of colour in here, isn't there, that I can see? Is that a butterfly in her other hand? I was trying to work that out.
2: Ah, okay, this is a National Trust edition. (laughs) So um, the old lady has her finger up at the Grim Reaper. And this was causing a bit of controversy with certain members of the (laughs) National Trust team. (laughs) So the butterfly... Would be put on and then taken off, and then it would be back on again. And <laughs> depend who was walking past it That's, at that particular time, and that, also whether they had a school trip visiting. All uh, oh, right, what an
0: interactive piece of art! <laughs> really the,
1: the audio equivalent would be the radio edit. Would yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm with yeah. you. Um, and obviously, as an audio person myself, I thought the um, th- there's an audio piece, isn't there? Quite, an, quite an extraordinary one because it covers over 20 minutes of audio, um, basically. Body's decomposition after death.
2: Absolutely, it's How- a very, very graphic piece.
1: Wow! How does it? That- so you're supposed to lie back, are you, whilst experiencing this? You're supposed this? to
2: lie back, and <laughs> it's it's a meditation basically. You close your eyes and totally become dead, and then wow. w- get to see what happens to your body after death, which is something that most people never deal with and never really question traditionally the funeral director takes the body straight away and then the body is dealt with elsewhere and seen as this sort of byproduct of of life to be got rid of as soon as possible but this was by an artist duo called french and mortis head who worked with i think she was a forensic something scientist um, who explained to them what happens to the body after death in graphic detail So you lie back and um, it begins with you're on the forest floor and a fly lands on your nose and crawls into the nasal cavity and then lays eggs and then maggots erupt. And then all sorts of things happen with fluids being released and there's something from a funeral director's point of view called purge, which is when the body is releasing all of the stuff and it's seeping out of every cavity Death is quite grisly, it's very far from the glamorous <laughs> world of fashion. Yeah. <laughs> the reality of it is something that most people don't experience. French and had put together a series. One of them is a really lovely, peaceful, almost wildlife meditation where you're lying in a forest on the floor and slowly returning to nature.
3: The blood sinking to the back of your body is flooding your skin red. Except where pressure points impress a delicate pale pattern onto your discoloured skin, where the back of your head, shoulder blades, elbows, buttocks, calves, and heels meet the ground, where fleshy parts are pressing into the twigs you lie on, where the creases Seams and textures of your clothing Mark your skin The redness Darkens to purple As you pass through the night
2: There's another one which we also had The National Trust's property that we used Sutton House Has a squat in the top floor Because during the 80s the property was squatted Before it became National Trust And because that was such an important part of its history They have kept it there And we worked with another artist whose father had been found dead after dying quite some time and she'd found him on the sofa decomposing into the sofa. And French and Watershead had this wonderful meditation about dying at home and not being found that's less romantic. I mean, none of them are really romantic but at least the wildlife nature one is much more calming and peaceful and lovely in this return to nature whereas the one-way you have died at home in a flat and all the heating is on and the windows are shut, Mm. which is the reality that funeral directors often have to deal with. Mm. Um, People don't get found for a very long time and what then is left is not very pleasant.
1: So you haven't really sidestepped anything with this exhibition, have you?
2: No, that was probably as graphic as it got and it had to have a warning at the door.
1: Of the three that I, I wanted to to flag up, we'll finish with Jenny Lewis's One Day Young.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, before I even read anything about this, it was the fact that it wasn't initially, to, to my glance, a picture about death. It was very much a picture uh, about life, mm-hmm. really. Young baby in the arms, not necessarily held closely and, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a traditional shot at all. And the, mm-hmm. the, the look on um, the woman's face is just... Wow, blew me away, actually. Mm. Um, But this is kind of um, post-childbirth and resilience and strength, I guess.
2: It is, and Jenny Lewis, the photographer, wanted to look at how mothers are portrayed immediately after birth and how, same way with death, how beautiful yet ugly and raw it can be. Um, and how it's often not very glamorous Mm -hmm. and it's not sort of this happy, oh, I had a wonderful birth and now I have this wonderful baby and we're all going to look fantastic. Mm. Um, And it was set in Hackney as well. All the pictures were taken in the local area surrounding Sutton House. I think she took about a 1,000 of them over a couple of years from very rich people, very poor people. She contacted them and within an hour of the baby being born, she took these pictures. Wow. Um, Wow. And the idea was to get across that birth isn't, necessarily that glamorous but it's beautiful in its own way and to help women especially to deal with for example most women don't know that after you have given birth the bump doesn't necessarily totally disappear Mm. yeah and seeing these women as they are with no makeup having not showered for three days and (laughs) (laughs) all the pictures are totally different and some are very close to their babies others are quite apart but they all tell a very different story
1: and so how can one engage with the exhibition now
2: now it's finished well it's hopefully becoming a book and hopefully it will have a new home sometime later this year and we can have a bigger better more life and death filled festival coming soon
1: amazing quite amazing what did you think Steph
0: oh I absolutely love it I think it was just firstly just such an amazing idea as you say to have it in a place where people might not be expecting Mm -hmm. to see it And what I particularly liked was um, the bit about things that were unspoken or unsaid, where you got people to write on little pieces of paper and all Mm -hmm. across the staircase, wasn't it? I thought that was really, really stunning and reminds us how important it is to say Mm -hmm. these things while we can.
2: The unsaid part of the exhibition came out of my work in funerals and dealing with families for when it's too late. Mm. By the time I get there, it's too late for them to say what they want to say. And they are sometimes full of regret about the way that they have lived their lives. And it's now too late to change. And unsaid was a way of getting people to express whatever it was unsaid. And it doesn't necessarily have to be to do with death as the loss of someone. end of relationships, end of a career being fired, all of that stuff brings about its own grief and its own unsaid words Um, and every day that we went into the National Trust of Property we would go to the staircase and just cry Mm -hmm. because it was amazing what had happened and how some of them were so emotional and so beautiful and thinking who wrote these we sort of we've seen all the visitors that have walked through the door who is responsible for these anonymous submissions yeah Yeah, it's fascinating
0: i read through it a bit earlier today and definitely had a tear in my eye i have Mm -hmm. to say but the whole thing that's really brilliant and exciting that it still will go on it's still going on (laughs) 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 wonderful
1: Well, Louise, thank you ever so much for joining us. Absolutely mind-blowing. And for such a young person to be so engaged with this from a life, literally a life-filled and life-giving perspective as well. Thanks ever so much for coming in.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Why not subscribe to The Art of Dying Well podcasts? Just search for The Art of Dying Well on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn.
0: Well, I'm sure you can all understand now just why we are not going to have a death chatter this week because Louise was absolutely fantastic. Mm. So that means that we are now jumping straight to our little reflective element of the podcast, aren't we, James?
1: Which is...
0: The view from the chaplain's chair.
1: Well, you might remember that last month, Steph, we spoke to Father George Bowen for our chaplain's chair slot. Well, he's back with something rather more meditative. And I'm sure you remember because you asked him the question. It came off the back of this.
0: Is there a positive way to talk about death?
4: Is there? Tell us, Father George. It's a good question, and on the face of it, you'd think, well, there's no way that you could be positive on the subject of dying. And the reflection that I would like to introduce here is the idea that basically it's exactly the prospect that the disciples were confronted with when the person that they thought was going to lead them towards success, towards everything being great, ended up saying, you've got to follow me, because that's your job as disciples, follow me where I lead you. And now I'm asking you to follow me up Mount Calvary, or we can talk about it as being the way of the cross. And the disciples ran away. They wanted to be anywhere other than that, because they were not prepared for the story to end with death. But for each one of us, including those disciples, of course, the story had to end with death. The problem is if we simply think of this as being an experience which we have to confront at some stage or another and we try and push it into the long grass for as long as we possibly can and even when we are confronting death trying to avoid even thinking about it in the time when we really have to think about it. What Jesus seems to be teaching us I think is that far from it being an experience which is negative in that way we can think of death as being something which we do following in the footsteps of Jesus, which is to say, what he did when he suffered and died was to suffer and die for a purpose. He suffered and died for us human beings, all of us. And he turned death into something which was an offering. He was offering up his life. He was offering up the experience of his suffering. And in a sense, what he seems to be asking us to do, his disciples, is to think of death in those terms. Is it not possible to say or to feel if you are somebody that is lying in bed, in a hospital, in pain, in anguish, in fear, for the next half of a day or for the whole of this day, I'm going to offer up all of my experience of suffering for my beloved husband, my beloved wife, my children, world peace, whatever your cause is. And you say at the end of that period, at the end of the day, you can turn around and say, well, I've suffered a lot, but at least what I've done is to follow in the footsteps of Christ. I've suffered for a purpose in one way or another. And that's something very beautiful. And that's something that you're transforming what is, of course, a negative experience into something which is prayerful and positive. So I think we all have to climb Calvary. We don't have to call it Calvary, but we can call it Calvary. And we can turn it from seeing something absolutely negative into something that has spiritual value in one way or another
1: indeed we can and using calvary steph is a a pretty good way and creative way of doing that isn't it
0: it definitely is it reminded me a bit of you know other sort of meditation techniques where you sort of walk through a specific journey and I think that is one really really strong example of that
1: and actually Catherine Mannix our guest from last month if you remember on the website you can still get it artofdyingwell.org you'll find a nice reflection from Catherine that actually uses a similar vehicle but Gethsemane Christ in Gethsemane doesn't it? it
0: does yeah
1: well sadly very sadly that's it for this month I hope you've enjoyed it I enjoyed it didn't you Steph?
0: I certainly did as always
1: I don't know what I'm going to do for another month until we record again
0: We'll find some more guests to interview, James, and we'll uh, we'll be back in June. Death Chatter will return. So yes, I've missed it. I've missed it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sniff. I
3: know. No.
1: I'll look forward to that. Um, well, it just remains to thank our listeners for spending a good half an hour. There's a long one this yes. time around.
0: Thank you, everyone.
1: And we'll be back next
3: month. Bye.